0: Hello and welcome to this GCP Short, produced in collaboration with Spring Consulting Group and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. Over the next 15 minutes or so, I will be joined in conversation by Karen Landry, Managing Partner at Spring Consulting, and Frederick Finman, Head of Group Risk Management at the Swedish global engineering giant Sandovik. Karen and Frederick debate the differences between the European and US captive markets, specifically with regards to regulatory culture, the impact of the hard market. And Karen also provides an update for us at the end on the growing activity at the Department of Labour with reference to ERISA benefits and hopefully some approvals uh, just around the corner. Frederick begins, however, by reminding listeners about Sandvik, his role and their captive profile.
1: Yes, so um, I'm uh, head of group risk management for a Swedish industrial group called Sandvik, and uh, we're we're kind of a conglomerate uh, supplying the global mining industry with with uh, machinery. We also do metal cutting tools. So, for example, the the most of the car engines of the world are manufactured without our uh, metal cutting tools, for example. So those are some of the product segments that we do. And we have a Swedish domiciled captive uh, that we've had for for more than 10 years. Before that, we uh, had a domicile in in Switzerland. And um, we currently run uh, property and business interruption as well as uh, general products liability in our captive. Fantastic. And uh, as you mentioned there, obviously pre- previous had a captive in
0: Switzerland. I think we might have discussed it on the podcast before, but that was quite a, a common move, wasn't it, for Swedish companies to make 10, 15 years ago from moving out of Luxembourg or Switzerland
1: and, and back home to Sweden. Yeah, that, that, that was very much a tax-driven domicile f- from the beginning, I mean, if you go back a couple of decades or so, but then following so the harmonization of tax regulations within Europe and also uh, sort of make it easy to operate the captive, uh, the decision was made to, to move it back to our home country. Karen, one of the things I want this podcast to be about, uh, if you've
0: worked with Frederick for a long time, is that kind of those differences between the European and and the US uh, captive market and and cultures. Obviously, you primarily work with, U.S. companies uh, and, and some Europeans as well, but how different is it for you working with a large European multinational with a, a European captive compared to a kind of your, your other U.S. client base, which tend to be U.S. corporates with either U.S. captives or they might be um, offshore. Is there, is there much many different things for you to consider and prioritize in working with this kind of client?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of differences between uh, the EU, Europe and uh, the U.S. I think, you know, in the U.S., there are over 35 domiciles. The regulators are relatively friendly to captives. They're flexible. The capital and surplus requirements are, you know, again, uh, more flexible. So I think there's a different view in the U.S. uh, where captives are regulation light. I'd say that that pervades, you know, for companies to use them for their own risks and not be treated like a regular insurance company. Uh, And that really runs all the way through from reporting to the number of meetings you have to have and and so forth. But they're state-regulated. That's uh, one thing that's a little bit more complex than in Europe. With the European captive, uh, definitely I think there's more regulation from capital and surplus to reporting requirements, less flexibility. Um, The regulators are a little bit more, even in the captive domiciles, like traditional regulators, they're complying with solvency too. So you know, in terms of the view from a captive in the U.S. versus the view from a European captive program, I think that they're used to ease uh, of setup and working and flexibility. To you know, generally. Um, some of the companies we've worked with in Europe, it's gone the other way. It's gone, you know, when Solvency 2 first came out, you know, the regulations were more onerous now that com- some companies left uh, the captive space and the ones that have stayed have dealt with those regulations. And so uh, just the perspective is different from uh, we have a client that has multinational operations in manufacturing looking to go into Europe. And they can't believe how constrained it is versus the U.S. And I think you know when we see European captives coming into the U.S., they can't believe how easy it is to to get something approved and and whatnot. Definitely a lot more flexibility.
0: I've definitely had many conversations with the kind of companies you're talking about there in in the past who have had a u.s captive and they've got bigger european operations so they they're exploring what the options are in europe i actually had a meeting this week with with a with a a captive owner very experienced captive owner big vermont captive and they're looking at uh, setting something up internationally and and they're just starting off on that journey and yeah i think they're a little bit shocked about what some of the more restrictions are or and also the options are are broadly different, aren't they? Like Guernsey compared to Malta or, or Ireland compared to Dublin or, or
1: Luxembourg. They're quite different jurisdictions. My, my feeling is that the US captives are maybe more embedded in the parent company's operation and business than the European ones. And that uh, there is a better dialogue between the parent and the captive in the US than there is in, in, in Europe. Um, That's just a feeling I have.
2: Yeah, I mean I think it varies by client. I think some clients, you know, once they get involved in a captive, we have a client with, you know, over seventeen different lines of coverage and the first place they look at to put any risk that they have is to the captive first to utilize it because it's been so successful in saving money. In fact we do a benchmarking for this client and they've saved $125 million over ten years. I mean that's really pretty significant. Mm And um, so there are clients like that, and then there are clients just getting started. You know that might have one difficult line of coverage or put their medical stop loss in. So it really it really varies, and it's a you know it's almost like a, a learning experience. You know um, some of the captives that have been around for a while, like I could think of a, an auto company that we work with that that really is qu- they're quite sophisticated. They're global. Uh, they, you know, they use it for a lot of different things. So, um,
0: and we've had them on the podcast before. Yes, we yes, had them on we, the have. we had Subaru. We had Subaru on last year. So, Frederick, you come to Seeker every year. Obviously, not the last two years, like, like all of us. But you, you come to Seeker every year, and I think it's fair to say you're one of the few European captive owners that does make this trip over. And I'm always happy to see you here. How, how do you assess for differences between the European insurance captive market with with the culture in the US? You touched there on the Kind of ingrained nature, more ingrained nature. You think,
1: yeah. Um, what else? No, but I, I see a greater diversity uh, in, in the U.S. as compared to, to Europe. In, in, in sort of in terms of uh, the, the the types of captives that are, I mean, it's uh, single parent captives are are, are very dominant in Europe, whereas here you have a greater diversity of of, of captive types. Um, maybe I see also other types of uh, lines of business being uh, written in the captive, uh, particularly within employee benefits. That might be more common here uh, than in, uh, in Europe. And of course, if we, we already touched about that, the, the regulatory burden in Europe is, is significantly higher than here. And uh, I, I just did that comparison uh, for, for the European Captive Forum in last autumn that we, we have 27 Filings on an annual basis to the regulator in Sweden, whereas a handful here in the U.S. Uh, on average. So that is also a difference. And Karen, you touched upon the, the capital requirements as well being also significantly lower here. We were talking hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million or so, whereas in Europe it's 3 to 5 million euros minimum to start off a captive. So, And also you touched upon the, how uh, the regulators are more friendly captives here than in Europe. Uh, having a coffee with a regulator in Europe is is unheard of, uh, for example, and the, the, the good dialogue I have with regulators here from various states is, is something we don't experience in Sweden and, or in Europe. For me, that's the number one standout. It's like I've always kind of
0: Complained about to the to the European regulators myself i 'm always like, just chill out a bit, guys, I understand it. I understand where where it comes from. I understand there, sh- there needs to be some level of separation between obviously business development and and regulation, of course, but it doesn 't mean that you shouldn't be able to have a, a chat uh, with regulators. I think the u s market is probably richer for for that entrepreneurial perhaps a, a pr- approach to it. One thing i haven 't prepared you for, Frederick, but obviously. The US, the other thing which is pretty unique about the US is just the sheer number of domiciles. As you say, it's more captive-friendly. Some people might say it's too many in terms of US states now, and it's kind of clouded the picture a bit. But uh, have you got a sense of, what, how they offer different things or did you look at that and think well it'd be great if we had that in europe that all con- all countries were trying to be a um a bit more
1: captive friendly or a bit more open to, to understanding and, and regulating captives not honest i i don't i don't know sort of the the pros and cons with the different domiciles of the us we've uh, we've actually done a pre-study on on setting up a captive in the us and and then Vermont came up as the number one choice probably for us uh, if we do pure insurance if we do d- direct insurance it would be South Carolina due to, to the fact that we have significant operations there so I think that's that's as far as we've come in in in, in selecting domiciles in the U.S.
0: Well, it's interesting. We literally recorded yesterday uh, for Seeker. We've recorded a uh, best practices, uh, how to choose a captive domicile uh, episode for Seeker with, with a couple of captive managers. We we're releasing that in a, in a few weeks' time, I think. And they exactly talk about those exact issues, you know, direct versus reinsurance, and where your operations are in the US, and obviously can all have all have an impact. Karen, what's the big topic? um, Do you think among clients? Obviously, you've you've been at Seeker this week, and you talk to your clients regularly. We hear a lot more, of course, about cyber going into captives. More, of course, there's the DNO discussions at the moment. Everyone's having. Or is it is it the hard market, which is still ultimately the the big the big ticket? Yeah, DNO and there's DNO and cyber issues. Obviously, relate they're part of the hard market.
2: Yeah, no, we you know we certainly hear a lot about DNO and cyber. We're also, um, you know, there's been a lot of merger uh, and acquisition activity. We're doing a lot of assignments looking at re or uh, risk optimization of someone's captive uh, because, you know, for example, we had two uh, giant defense companies come together and you know, they both had captives, you know, sort of assessing, you know, what captive they should work with, you know, what lines go into the captive. I think there's been a lot more of that because of the mergers and acquisitions activity. So that risk optimization, um, refeasibility has been on everyone's mind, particularly with the hard market. Certainly d and cyber, everyone has cyber at the top of their list, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, d is a is a close uh, second following that i'd say health care yeah. health insurance because um you know for the last two years with covid health care costs have you know gone down or been you know flat in any case now because of deferred care, rates are climbing, and um you know employers are looking again, how do I stem this you know and a captive's a natural solution, so we've seen a big increase in employers you know, looking at captive marketplaces for stop loss insurance, where before, you know, it's, it's really been uh, climbing over the course of the last uh, couple of years, but really has taken off after COVID because the winners were people that were self-insured yeah. and the health plans, because if they were, had a fully insured program, they won, you know, they got to keep uh, all the premiums that were paid. The losers were fully insured and those, you know, not participating in the captive market for stop loss.
0: Yeah, interesting. We're going to come. Uh, I've got a last question for you in a minute, Karen, about specifically about employee benefits. So we'll expand a little bit on that in a second. Frederick, Karen mentioned there, obviously, not just all this new formation activity we've seen in the past couple of years, but also existing captive owners, maybe such as yourselves, kind of taking another look at how they use their captive. Uh, I think you called it a re i've never heard i've never heard re-feasibility before i like that i like that a lot frederick has as to kind of the market conditions and obviously covid have been a busy time and, and changed companies uh, anyway but has the insurance market conditions of the last couple of years made you
1: think again or or relook or, or use your capital differently at all it has and and i mean it's now in the in the more hard market that we experience in, in europe right now where the the, the true value of, of the captive uh, sort of is, is uh, displayed uh, to us. So we have certainly begun to, uh, to retain more risk in our captive, mitigating sort of the decreased risk appetite of the insurance market with this increased risk retention. We, of course, also want to protect our business from, uh, from increased cost. So to the extent possible and approved by our actuary, we have actually, combined with the increased retention, we we've have unchanged premium uh, or even try to lower the premium uh, in some instances, depending on, on the, uh, the premium increase uh, from the market side. Uh, so that, that, is, that is one thing. And then if we talk about uh, trending in general, what we see in, in Sweden, it, it is that uh, also following the, maybe the regulatory burden is that captives tend to move from, from direct insurance to pure reinsurance. To, to create a leaner structure many companies also look at introducing more lines of business to to get the better compensation for the increased operating costs as well
0: lastly Karen uh, you, you touched on healthcare costs there and of course we know that Spring and yourself are very experienced on the employer benefits side of things. i I believe I've heard you. You might have some ERISA applications in the work. We might get some news on that uh, this year at some point. What changes have you seen in, in companies' approach to employee benefits and, and the involvement of captives over, over the past couple of years?
2: So certainly on you know the healthcare side of the fence, it's been increasing as I mentioned. But really, um, you know, on the benefit side in general, it's been increasing. So things that clients have been interested in, aside from medical stop loss, where there's been a 40% of the risk going into captives, a pretty substantial level. They're looking at things like voluntary benefits and other group solutions to minimize uh, their risk. If a coverage has to go through the Department of Labor, it's an extra step. It's another regulatory process. But um, the DOL, (coughs) over the last couple of years, they've taken some time to rethink their process, to create a clear path, uh, streamline their approach to a check the box process. And with uh, a couple of filings that just um, got tentative authorization, uh, Philip 66 and Comcast, they haven't received final authorization, so they're not quite out the door yet. The DOL has to write it up. I mean, I think they've streamlined the approach. Um, and there are others in the queue. So generally, I think, um, as benefits cost increase employers will think about it further we see a big level of interest in pension yeah. plan terminations um, really because uh with the the run-up in the stock market many of the plans are fully funded some are overfunded trying to terminate terminate those plans there's a significant savings versus buying an annuity through the commercial marketplace as much as 20 percent. and uh, you know we have a client it's a two billion dollar plan when you're working you know, with someone that has all that liability, you know that's that's a lot of money. So um, you know we expect to see more interest in that area.
0: Well, thank you to Karen Landry of Spring Consulting and Frederick Finman of Sandvik for that 15-minute conversation recorded at the Seeker International Conference in March. For more information on our guests and Spring's captive practice, then do visit the globalcaptivepodcast.com website and visit our Friends of the Podcast page. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.